Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Cheer Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Yuka Koshino, IISS Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. For the second episode of 2023, we're delighted to welcome two distinguished experts. Former Lieutenant General Oe Sadamasa and our very own Douglas Berry to discuss Japan's air power in 2035. We are especially excited to welcome them to gain their insights into Japan's air power following the release of its three national security documents and the landmark signing of the Global Combat Air Program between Japan, the UK, and Italy last December. Oe san is a retired Lieutenant General of the Japan Air Self Defense Force, or JASDAF. And is currently consulting senior fellow at the Institute of Geoeconomics in Tokyo. He is also senior special fellow at the Global Economic and Political Studies Division at Mitsui and Company. Upon his promotion to Lieutenant General, Owesan assumed the position of Commandant of the Air Staff College. Afterwards, he served as a commander of the Northern Air Defense Command, responsible for coping with missile launches from North Korea, responding to Russian air activities. And maintaining readiness to provide forces with other defense sectors' operations. He retired in August 2017 as commander of Air Material Command, and since then, Owesan has played a leading role in multiple Taiwan contingency war games with Japanese security community, the results of which have been published. Owesan is also the first former Japanese Self Defense Force member we have had on the show, so we're very glad to have you with us today. Doug is the WIWS Senior Fellow for Military Aerospace, responsible for ensuring the quality of the Institute's military aerospace analysis and the information on air power capabilities presented in the military balance. The latest edition will come out on the 15th of February. He has decades of expertise in analyzing defense, air power, and air forces, NATO, China, and Russia, guided weapons, and the defense aerospace industry. He contributes to other IISS publications, databases, and conference activities, as well as taking a prominent role in strengthening the Institute's networks among defense ministries, air forces, and defense industries. Before joining the Institute, Doug worked as the London Bureau Chief for Aviation Week and Space Technology, European Editor of Defense News, and Defense Aviation Editor for Flight International, and Deputy News Editor for James Defense Weekly. Thank you both very much for being here to discuss this critical element of Japan's defense and security policy and military power. So, let's open with a quick overview of the security environment surrounding Japan and especially the imminent threats posed to JASDAF, notably China, North Korea, and Russia. Oe san, I will start with you first. How has Japan's security environment evolved over the past decade, and how is that challenging Japan to achieve superiority in air domain? Uh, Yuka san, thank you very much for your kind introduction. I think Japan is facing the most severe security environment as articulated in the national security strategy and national defense strategy in two aspects. First, global security order is challenged by Russian invasion to Ukraine, and global power balance is shifting to China's favor, particularly in Indo Pacific. North Korea seems to acquire operational capability of various ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. China poses existential threat to unify Taiwan by force. So, Japan is a forward country to confront with these threats, both geographically and ideologically. Second, the way of warfare has drastically changed by various advanced technologies such as UAV and hypersonic vehicles. 
we must be able to conduct all domain operations, including cyber, space, and electromagnetic field. As demonstrated in the Ukrainian war, it will be difficult to achieve air superiority in this new warfare. Therefore, Japan Air Self-Defense Force must evolve to deal with threats neighboring countries pose with advanced capability in the future operational environment. Thank you very much for that overview, Wissan, and we'll get to um, how JASDAF is going to respond to that in a minute. Doug, you have been following these countries' capabilities very closely in the air domain. What are the key developments, especially in the air domain, that you think will challenge Japan's security and JASDAF's capabilities? Thanks, Yuka, for having me on the show. If you look at the Chinese Air Force today, so the, the, the PLAF today and a PLAF 30 years ago, completely different, totally revamped. So if you go back to the early 1990s, you basically have a, a very large fleet size made up of almost completely obsolescent aircraft. In the early 1990s, the Chinese had the opportunity to access Russian combat aircraft because of the collapse of the Soviet Union primarily. They start to buy the Su-27 flanker. The flanker over the years has become one of the key platforms for the PLAF a very capable platform in itself. And it's also been upgraded, the introduction of domestic capabilities, radars, weapons. At the same time, you've seen the development of the J-10 family. We're now with the J-10C, which is a pretty capable platform as well. And obviously, uh, most recently, the introduction of the Chengdu J-20. So a combat aircraft with significant signature reduction features. So the PLAF is a very, very different force, certainly in terms of its tactical combat aircraft fleets. We've also seen bomber upgrades. We've seen an increasing emphasis on enabler-type aircraft, so airborne early warning, a panoply of signals intelligence capabilities, and as previously mentioned, obviously, uninhabited systems as well. So right across the board, it's a very, very different force, and it presents a far greater challenge in technical terms when Japan looks at China's capabilities today. Russia, less so because of the lack of investment during the 1990s, but it's still a regional power and it's a regional issue. North Korea, the challenges there are, are, are fairly obvious and they don't come from the traditional combat air power. The North has a very limited conventional air arm, again, predominantly aging types, some very old types. The threats are from its ballistic and cruise missile arsenal. Thank you very much for outlining on all those that in details on very important. So, Owe-san, Japan released uh, three historic strategic documents in 2022 and the first national security strategy since 2013, its first national defense strategy in the post-war period, and also the defense build-up program that outlines Japan's procurement strategy in the next five years. To better align Japan's ends, means, and ways to address this intensified security challenges that Japan is facing, that both of you just laid out. So what do these documents tell us about how Japan seeks to respond to these threats that we have just discussed, especially in the perspective of Japan's air self-defense forces? And also, what do you think the role of JASDAF in responding to these challenges, both in peacetime and also during a contingency? Yes, that's very important questions. And I fully agree with Doug's evaluation of the threats we are facing. To respond to these threats, National Defense Strategy lays out three approaches. The first approach is to fundamentally reinforce Japan's defense capabilities 
and to reinforce the defense architecture of the whole country. The second approach is to further reinforce joint deterrence and response capability of the Japan-US alliance. And the third approach is to reinforce collaboration with like-minded countries. And also, we have the seven pillars to strengthen Japan's defense capability to deter Taiwan contingency for the next five years and cope with the threats more effectively within 10 years. These include counter-strike capability, integrated air missile defense, unmanned assets, cross-domain operation, C4SL, mobility and civil protection, and sustainability and resilience. JASDEF is expected to play a major role to achieve this reinforcement, particularly in the air and space domains. As you mentioned, we have to prepare for both peacetime and contingency uh, crisis time. Japanese Air Self-Defense Force conduct scramble operations every month. The last December, JASDEF flies 52 times sortie scramble patrol against Chinese airplane. So this is the uh, ordinary mission for JASDEF. By conducting these ordinary missions, we will enhance the deterrence power of Japan and also transforming JASDEF capability to meet the future mission requirements. Thank you. Maybe just a follow-up question on that. One of the major policy changes announced in the strategic document was the acquisition of counter-strike capabilities in a case of attack against Japan or a third country close to Japan. This will add a sphere to Japan's missile defense architecture, which relies heavily on the shield, the ballistic missile defense system, such as PAC-3 and Aegis systems. But what role do you think the JASDAF will play in the counter-strike capabilities? How do you think this will change its requirements in air and space? JASDEF mission is constrained by the uh, exclusively defense-oriented policy. JASDEF has not engaged any offensive operations so far. JASDEF needs to create doctrines to use the counter-strike capability and also the uh, capability for targeting ISR. So this is a very challenging mission for the JASDEF with assistance of United States uh, counterparts and also joint operation with uh, ground self-defense force and the maritime self-defense force, we will be able to achieve this new mission as soon as possible. Thank you. And Doug, so speaking of Japan's missile defense, the three documents also adopted the Integrated Air and Missile Defense, the IAMD concept for the first time, previously called the Comprehensive Air and Missile Defense. So suggesting that Japan's missile defense systems could be further integrated with the U.S., what does this mean for regional missile deterrence? The Integrated Air and Missile Defense and, and the word comprehensive are, are, are reasonably easy to say. They're rather difficult to implement. IAMD is something you never fully achieve, in a sense. It's a continual process. It's never, ever going to be perfect. It poses lots and lots of challenges, even at just the national level, trying to integrate a whole range of sensors, interceptors, pulling them all together. You're trying to do that cross-domain, and then you're trying to do that effectively cross-border with allies. So you're trying to pull together lots and lots of different kinds of systems. Hopefully, they're interoperable. That sometimes doesn't turn out to be the case, at least initially. So you've got to figure out lots of kind of gateways where one system can provide information to another. That then takes you into areas of classification and what countries are willing to share or are able to share. It's the right goal. It's the correct goal. 
but I don't think you should underestimate the challenges that such an approach poses. It's the right way to go. There are just going to be a lot of things that will have to be resolved and sorted before you get there. Thank you very much for that. Last question to Oesan on this first section. What are your thoughts on the feasibility of implementing the three new national security documents in a given time frame and beyond? We adding to some of the challenges that、uh, Doug just mentioned. I agree. We'll see assessment by Doug regarding the IAMD. It's a very difficult to construct the fully operational IAMD. If you look at the、uh, hypersonic、uh, riding vehicle and missiles. It's almost impossible to intercept this hypervelocity projectile by IAMD. That's why Japan decided to possess counter-strike capability to deter such an attack and intercept the missile on the ground. And honestly, the new policies and strategies posed in the three documents are very ambitious and convergent from the previous、uh, policies, such as acquiring strike capability, as I just mentioned, and double. The defense budget was it to admire, but de- very difficult to implement. Implementing these will require much harder efforts than drafting them, and if Japan fails to achieve reinforcement, it may be counterproductive. In order to achieve these challenging goals, whole government and whole nation needs to make strenuous efforts, including investing resources. Strategists and defense planners in self-defense force. Must take innovative approach and creative thinking. For example, due to various reasons such as policy constraints and insufficient budget, self-defense force have not achieved digital transformation and automation yet. Self-defense force should not try to pursue it step by step, but rather take a leapfrog strategy to make most use of existing advanced technologies. In other words, taking advantage of latecomer position. It is also important to maintain fine balance in allocation of efforts between raising operational readiness today and enhancing future capability. Thank you very much for that. I think that's a great segue to talk about some of the capabilities that Japan's trying to develop beyond 2027. In December 2022, the UK, Japan, and Italy officially announced their collaboration on the Global Combat Air Program, or GCAP. Scheduled to be completed by 2035, and this will replace Japan's F-2, for instance. The program brings together key actors in the British, Japanese, and Italian defense industries to produce a next-generation fighter aircraft, which was called the British Tempest and Japan's FX Future Fighter Jets. So, I have a question to both of you: What is the significance of this program, and what do we know so far about this cooperation? I think the program itself is fascinating. It kind of marks a departure, if you like, in the traditional models of collaborative combat aircraft development. In the European context, obviously, this was normally done amongst European partners. Occasionally, there would be a transatlantic element, obviously, with the UK participation in the F-35 as a tier one partner. The model where you have an equal partner. A country out with the kind of traditional collaborative partners, if you like, I think is is fascinating. I think it's important. I think it's a really interesting approach. Obviously, there are two rival projects which have European elements: the the Franco-German Spanish SCAF NGF project, and then obviously, as you mentioned, GCAP with the UK, Italy, and now Japan. 
One of the challenges, I suppose, is, if you like, simply the tyranny of distance. There's a fair old distance between London and Tokyo and Tokyo and London. Just managing elements of the programme around that will be a challenge, not insurmountable. It will pose some interesting conversations. The languages. English tends to be the, the lingua franca of the defence aerospace world, but there will be a lot of material that will need to be translated both into Italian and into Japanese and, and vice versa. There will be substantial paperwork, even in a digital form, to accommodate this. The project itself is highly ambitious. The timelines are certainly ambitious. The goal still seems to be to have aircraft coming off the production line and beginning to enter service around or as close to 2035 or thereafter as possible, which is by anybody's time frame a pretty pacey effort which will need to be pushed hard. All the indications are at the moment that all three countries want to sustain this and the pace of development seems to be moving ahead. Thank you very much for that assessment, Doug. So, Obisan, I see you nodding to some of his comments. What do you think about the significance of this program and, and what's your assessment on this? Government of Japan finally decided last December to undertake joint development with the UK and Italy. After careful considerations as well as elaborate negotiation with the United States, the Global Combat Air Program is the most important national project to Japan not only to develop future air power, but also to reinforce R&D and production capabilities of Japanese defense industries. There are many issues, as Doug mentioned, to be addressed to move on the program, including the uh, different budget cycle, legal issues for intellectual property and technology transfer, work share, and communication language. English is always a headache to Japanese, not to mention Italy. But another important issue is lack of experience in international joint development for the Japanese participants. On the other side of the same coin, I think this program will provide opportunity for the Japan's defense industry to become more competitive and international, opening the door for global market. Mutual trust is a key for success for joint initiative. While Japan and UK have already established mutual trust through the development of the joint new air-to-air missile, JNAM, and Italy and Leonardo also have very strong relations with Japan's aerospace industry, so I'm quite optimistic for the program to take off. Just to add, I think the point that was just made is a very important one about the industrial aspects of the program and how it will support the continued development of the defence aerospace industrial bases in all of the countries, not just Japan. All three partners face the same kind of challenge in that there needed to be a next-generation crewed combat aircraft platform development with domestic involvement to sustain the level of defence industrial base that each of these countries now has. And without that, each faced some fairly difficult choices about what to do with elements of your defence aerospace industrial base. Now, all three have committed to moving ahead. That is a fundamental issue. The US has traditionally been Japan's aerospace partner in combat aircraft terms. And I think it's interesting that on this occasion, that Tokyo has looked not to the US, but to build a, a second but important relationship with the UK and with Italy. Thank you for adding um, that very important point. 
So speaking about the importance to the defense industries, not just for Japan, but also for UK and, and also in Italy's side, especially in Japan's case, um, you know, reporting suggests that um, in order to actually develop a fighter jet, there's beyond the primes like the Mitsubishi Heavy Industry, which will be involved in the GCAB, there will be more than 1,000 subcontractors that will be working in this program. How do you think this program will impact British and Japanese defense industrial supply chains? Do you think there will be more interactions between these subcontractor levels between Japan and UK and Europe or broadly? Ogesan? Japan's defense industry has seriously declined due to shrinking contracts with self-defense force, expensive investment, and a few successes in exporting defense products. So the GCAP will secure resource investment and provide opportunity for skill upgrade and potential to develop products. This program is very complicated and requires many, many participants from prime companies to subcontractors to maybe local vendors. All participants need to share the same spirit of equal partner and then tries to overcome many difficulties which we will surely encounter throughout the developing process. The Japanese government will revise the three principles of arms export and operational rules to open up the door for export defense products to global market. This GCAP is a very strong motivation for the Japanese government to challenge these three principles. Thank you, Oresan. I have a question to Doug. You mentioned about the equal partnership, but there have been concerns over equal partnership in this project. Also, the division of labor between the primes in these three countries, like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, BAE, and Leonardo, and how effective this might be. So what are your assessments of the British and Japanese perspectives on these concerns and any potential obstacles that the three countries might face going forward in terms of the allocation of work? I think the industrial model has yet to be fully fleshed out, at least in the public domain. Obviously, all three of the industrial primes, if you like, will have their own ambitions, aims and goals. The key, in part, will be the ability to make compromises and to accept that you're not always going to get everything you want. The outcome is generally going to be for the common good. Perhaps a slightly oblique way to look at it is to look at the challenges that the French and Germans in particular have faced on their equivalent programme, where... The programme suffered at least 18 months delay, arguably, because the French and Germans at the industrial level couldn't agree the work share on key aspects of their project. For GCAP, I think there is a salutary lesson in that. If you really dig your heels in and are unwilling to compromise, then you risk certainly the timescales for the programme, and those timescales are already pretty ambitious. There needs to be industrial goodwill all round, and the ability to sit round and where problems do arise, and they will, it's inevitable. It's a demanding project, combat aircraft developments always are, but there needs to be the capacity to sit down in a room, physically or virtually, and to hammer out a deal that keeps the programme on track. Thank you very much for that, Doug. In terms of like essential bilateral and trilateral commonalities and synergies, do you see that the three countries have similar requirements based on their threats for this, this programme? I think certainly the UK and Japan do, and perhaps to a lesser extent Italy. The common threat driver, perhaps, between the UK and Japan in terms of combat air platforms tend to now be what China is producing. The J-20 is probably the significant threat driver. 
and also the associated weapons. China has made not only considerable progress, great progress, if you like, in terms of its combat air platforms, but also the air-to-air weapons. The PL-15, which is one of the primary medium to long-range air-to-air weapons, which equips the J-20, the J-10C, and also the J-16, is a very capable missile, almost certainly fitted with an active electronically scanned array seeker, which is one of the very few air-to-air missiles in the world to have that technology. So that in itself is also a threat driver. So when you look at the UK and Japan in particular, I think if you compare what are classified threat requirements, they wouldn't be hugely dissimilar. Thank you, Doug. Shifting beyond 2035 and GCAP, and with the advent of advanced technologies such as AI, 5G, and quantum science, enabling novel forms of future warfare, the landscape of air power is expected to dramatically change, as OSAN laid out in the beginning. And with its new defense documents, Japan seeks to make progress in some of these areas. Oversan, do you think Japan's investments in R&D, research and development for the advanced and emerging technology side, required for the future air capabilities are sufficient? Japan is far behind China, the United States, and many NATO countries regarding military application of emerging technologies. So the JASF needs to catch up with the development of PLA Air Force capability JASDEF has just started operation with Global Hawk. That is the only unmanned asset in JASDEF inventory. So as such, Japan should accelerate research and development in defense capability by investing resources, money, people, and time. And more importantly, government of Japan must encourage civilian sector's participation in defense initiatives. Because majority of innovative technologies are possessed, studied, and developed in private companies and research centers. So in this sense, government of Japan needs to revise legal barriers and improve public perception toward defense businesses. This effort should be done all of government and whole of nations approach. Thank you very much, Oesan. Doug, what are Japan's comparative advantages in this area from your perspective? And what kind of capabilities do you think that Japan should begin to look at strengthening or acquiring in order to complement those of its allies? I think you can see that Japan has a pretty strong technology base in terms of the digital realm, in the commercial sector. I mean, we mentioned previously uninhabited systems. Obviously, these are going to feature more, I think, as part of GCAP. You will see what sometimes are called adjuncts pilots, friends, remote carriers, collaborative combat aircraft, I think is the US phrase at the moment, uninhabited systems which operate either closely coupled to the crewed platform or at greater distance, and they would be used to allow the crewed aircraft to remain not necessarily outside, but at considerable distance from a threat in, in any kind of contested air environment. And the kind of environments we're now looking at will be highly contested right across the kind of electromagnetic spectrum, and that poses in itself lots of operational challenges. There are a whole panoply of technologies which are coming into service or or being developed, which will help. But I don't think any one technology in itself, you know, is going to be the answer. Technology is never a panacea. And we've seen that in Ukraine, where actually the element that is the hardest in some ways to discern or analyse, and this is certainly true when it comes to the PLAAF, is we can see the platforms, we can see the equipment, and to some extent we see how they train, 
it's harder to tell how effective that training is and how good those capabilities and on those personnel would be in an actual combat situation. Coming back to the things that Japan probably is going to look towards, there will be elements of artificial intelligence increasingly used in key areas. I'm slightly sceptical about the kind of whole killer robot argument. I think that is still some way off if we're ever going to see that at all. Uninhabited systems certainly across the board will see greater use. They will operate alongside crude systems in support of those platforms. More capability, certainly. Probably some high-speed weapons or higher-speed weapons, not necessarily Mach 5 Plus, but certainly supersonic weapons and maybe in some areas Mach 5 Plus weapons. There are an array of technologies that will come into play. And one of the challenges, I suppose, for Japan in, in particular, although you see this in several countries, is just one of demographics, people. You need people for your armed forces. So one of the attractions one inhabited systems is it perhaps takes the load off exactly the number of personnel you actually need. It can supplement that and help. Thank you. That's a very important point in the end about people. Despite efforts to enhance military capabilities through acquisition and increased spending, jazz staff and a whole Japanese self-defense force themselves are facing several issues driven from the personnel issues, notably the declining population, which will inevitably impact recruitment and staffing of forces. So in preparation, as you just outlined, jazz staff has also increased the use of uninhabited systems and automation for operations and intelligence gathering. So, Owe-san, do you think that um, uninhabited systems and automation are viable long-term solutions for the personnel and staffing issues facing JAS staff? And what should the JAS staff and SDF as a whole do to overcome this issue? Uh, that's a very good questions and important questions. As Doug mentioned, technology is not the panacea to every problem. So, with declining young population, recruitment and retention of manpower, is already recognized as a serious threat from within. Japan as a nation must take immediate action to turn over this declining population trend. Air Service Defense Force should make most use of unmanned system, of course, and automation by introducing artificial intelligence and robotics to overcome these issues. Equally important is to ensure self-defense force members' welfare and a better environment to work with pride and increasing women's workplaces. In addition, self-defense force needs to reorganize each unit by allocating right person to right position and substitute whatever possible jobs such as non-combatant work with civilian sectors or private companies. These efforts should be done immediately by self-defense force. Thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for the fascinating discussion so far. Unfortunately, we need to end this conversation. So before we end, um, we uh, have two Japan Memo questions that we ask to all the guests of this podcast. So the first one, do you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan? The best book to understand Japan, particularly defense and security aspect, is Defense White Paper, published by the Ministry of Defense every year. It is free and easy to access in English. The white paper uses many photos, charts, and episodes of self-defense force members so that the readers not only understand Japanese defense policy and status, but also feel Japanese military for its people, training, and personal lives. 
Thank you, Oesan. Doug, do you have any recommendations either on Japan or the aerospace domain that we just discussed today? I offer up a couple of recommendations in Japan, but rather than books, I'd suggest authors. Either Shisaka Endo or Yasunari Kawabata are both fantastic authors, even in translation. They're wonderful to read. Thank you, Doug. The second question What do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Oh, I think we get a lot wrong about Japan. The thing that always strikes me is I think we sometimes think that Japanese people have no sense of humor. I think they have a fantastic sense of humor. Thank you. Oe-san? I try to、uh, say some humor in this conversation as well. <laughs> But foreigners sometimes recognize Japanese as Chinese or Koreans. Our appearance l o o k alike. But cultures are very different. Japanese people tend to see Japan as a small country. In reality, Japan is a big country with the third largest GDP, sixth largest EEZ, exclusive economic zone, leading role in diplomacy such as CPTPP and free open in the Pacific. Therefore, Japan is neither 10 feet tall nor three feet short. So, it is difficult but necessary to recognize Japan as it is. Right. And I'll also add that after this 43 trillion yen investment,、uh, which will make 2% of GDP on Japan's defense budget in the next five years, that also m a k e Japan the third largest defense spending in our, I think, our ca- calculation as well. So, thank you for that. And thank you, Oe-san and Doug. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to listen to our previous episodes with Professor Kanehara Nobukatsu, where we discuss Japan's new national security documents, and to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at, at Yuka Koshino on Twitter. Our guests are not on Twitter, but to track their work, we recommend you to follow the IISS at, at IISS.org and the Institute of Geoeconomics in the International House of Japan in Tokyo at, at IHouse Japan. Thanks again and see you next time. <laughs>